0: I ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew 23, Matthew 23. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to listen on. If you'd like to have a copy of the Bible, we do have those available for free for you to take as a gift uh, at the Welcome Center in the back in the lobby. That's there for you, Matthew 23. As you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 23, I want you to think with me of how many jobs you have had since your first job to present, how many jobs... You have had Now, some of you are young enough that that time might not go back that far that you can only think of maybe a few jobs that you've had. Some of you perhaps are old enough to maybe lose track of how many jobs you've had because you can't think back that far. Perhaps others of you perhaps have not been around that long, but you've had so many different jobs because you've had so many different interests. You're not sure where to commit. As you think of those jobs, let me ask you this next question. Have you ever been fired from a job? Now, I'm not asking for a show of hands. You don't need to admit that publicly, but, but I'll do so just to make you feel better about yourself if you can identify the job that you were fired in. One such job that I had was working for a health food store in Fort Lauderdale. This is a number of years ago before I was even married. Uh, this was before there was Whole Foods, there was this health food store, and it, it was a big grocery store. It had a restaurant attached, had like a little shoe department as well. It it was a phenomenal store. I enjoyed working there for the most part. Uh, It was soon after I'd moved down here and I had begun working there and, you know, really kind of interact with all different kinds of people. I remember one time uh, kind of interacting with this coworker who worked in the uh, bakery and deli area, and uh, she was such an intriguing person to me because... She was a Midwest girl from Nebraska who had dreadlocks, not because she's looking for a hairstyle choice, but because she was a Rastafarian. And I was like, what, what is a Rastafarian? And I had to go home and like, you know, AOL dial up, type in Rastafarianism, and to figure out what does that even mean? And then learned about this religion called Rastafarianism. It was the first pair of Birkenstocks ever owned was a pair I bought from that store, Man, those are comfortable sandals. If you've never had had a pair of Birkensocks, breaking those cork bed for your feet, it's amazing. But it's also the first job that I also had a chance to kind of have some authority in. I I was promoted to produce manager, a job that my wife still doubts that I held, perhaps my lack of affection for things produce. But nevertheless, I promise, as the Lord is my witness, that was my little small department of responsibility until I was fired. Not because I handled the fruits and the vegetables, but because of how I handled my time. I was a irresponsible college student. I wanted a job, I know I needed to work, I was living on my own and I needed some income and I was taking classes on the side, but I had this problem, it was called being punctual. It turns out, employers have this thing where they seem to appreciate punctual employees. I don't know why that is, but I hadn't learned that yet, and so I was notorious for always being late to work, to which finally my manager became notorious for firing me, except it wasn't ongoing and endlessly, it was just one and done, and I was over, and I remember that. I remember the sting of that, of like, f- for real? It's over? Perhaps you've been fired from a job and you even now, as I share my memory, you can think of your memory of what it was like to be fired from a job. There's different reasons why people are fired from jobs. Top 10 reasons are as follows. Poor work performance. You're just bad at what you do. Misconduct. Chronic lateness or absence. That that was yours truly. A drug, uh, excuse me, a, a company policy violation a drug or alcohol use at work. Turns out employers don't like that. Not sure why employees have to be taught that. Number six is the personal use of company property. No, it does not belong to you and you cannot take it with you. Next, related to that is number seven, theft or property damage. Number eight, falsifying company records. Number nine, inappropriate use of social media. It turns out your private life can come back on you. Who would have thought? And then number 10, insubordination. We know you're smarter than your boss. Turns out you're not the boss. And if you're insubordinate to your boss, you can lose your job. In any one of these reasons, perhaps you can identify with them, either perhaps as an employee or as an employer. If not this reason, maybe there's another reason you can think of. And perhaps if you were fired, maybe today you're still sitting there going, well, mine was exceptional. Mine was different. It wasn't fair. Perhaps that's true. Not all employers are fair. Not all rules in the world are balanced and equal, but sometimes they are. Well, tonight, we're gonna see some people get fired. And ironically, of all people who's gonna be doing the firing, it's Jesus. Jesus is gonna fire some people. But there won't be any debate, at least not a legitimate one. There'll be no valid claims of injustice. No valid counter arguments of heavy handedness or unreasonableness. It'll be done clearly and undeniably. If you're just joining us tonight, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to continue to do so week after week. And if you're looking for a special time in light of Christmas time, one that has already been invited and extended to you by invitation, let me just remind you again. Friday night, 6 p.m., one hour, right here, our Christmas Eve service. It's going to be a spectacular time to gather together, and feel free to bring your family and your friends and your coworkers and strangers and neighbors, anybody that you want to bring with you to do that. For our purposes tonight, we're going to continue working through the teachings of Matthew, this eyewitness record to the first century readers of what was going on in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. Indeed, he was the Christ, as we saw last week. Coming back to Matthew, now we come into chapter 23. This is it. This is Jesus' final public sermon. This is his final message before his subsequent arrest and crucifixion and resurrection. And you've got to kind of imagine, right? Like, just think about it. Like a pastor, I remember the final sermon I preached at the church that I was at in Cassavie in Indianapolis before I stepped down and came back to Miami after being gone for 20 years to come back to plant this church. I remember that. I remember the message I had to preach at Grace Community Church in Los Angeles, California for my ordination sermon. I remember the text. These are memorable moments. You've got to wonder, what what is it? What is the final sermon that the Son of God wants to preach publicly to all those in attendance to listen to? It's not a message of salvation, surprisingly. It's not a message of His resurrection. It's not a message of the Trinity, not a message of grace and forgiveness of love. Surprisingly, it's a message about false teachers. The entire chapter about false teachers. And that's exactly what we're going to see tonight in Matthew chapter 23. I'm reminded of James chapter 3 as we think of this, when James says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Friend, tonight we're about to see an illustration of that. We're about to see a bunch of religious teachers be judged with greater strictness by no one less than God himself. For it's Jesus who has these words to say here in Matthew 23. And really, he's got basically two different audiences. If you could kind of think of Matthew 23, this is kind of what it's like. It's like in the beginning of Matthew 23, verses 1 to 12, he's having a conversation with the disciples and the crowd. And that's really verses 1 to 12. But then in verses 13 and following to verse 36, he's having a conversation with the Pharisees. With the scribes, like how do we get in the Pharisee scribe cheating section? That's not fair. But the idea is everybody's present and he's having a conversation with the crowd, with the disciples who kind of be like the front center of the crowd, but he's having a conversation about them. He warms up with this conversation talking about them to them, but then he spends the rest of the time talking to them. And friends, this is a rather aggressive conversation, to put it mildly, because the things that Jesus says are profoundly provocative in how he confronts the problems. If you're thinking of our text this evening, first of all, we see the problem, verses 1 to 12. This is the distortion of godly leadership, the distortion of godly leadership. Secondly, we see the practices, the perversion of ungodly hypocrites. The distortion of God leadership, verses 1 to 12, and then the perversion of ungodly hypocrites, verses 13 through 36. And so now let's go back and look now, just kind of slow the tape down and look at the problem. Look with me at chapter 23, verses 1 to 12, and listen, or follow along in your Bibles if you have one, listen as I read to you what Jesus says here. Verse 1, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Verse 8, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have, no te- for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I have a friend of mine who is the CEO of a fruit company, and very kindly, he just mailed to my family recently a box of these like fancy mandarin oranges, And as soon as the box came in, I uh, was curious to know how good they were being shipped across the country. So peeling them like, okay, man, they're easy to peel. Now how do they taste? And ate one, and man, they were juicy. Super good. And I told my wife about these, and I didn't look at the rest of the box. I just ate the one on the top and then went about whatever else I was doing in the house. She later informed me, she's like, did you see the rotten ones? And I was like, no, I did not see the rotten ones. She said, at the bottom of the box, some of them are rotten. Took them out, threw them away. Jesus is talking to the disciples and the crowd here about religious teachers. His problem is not with the position or the practice of religious teachers. His problem is with the rotten ones that are corrupting it for everybody else. And that's exactly what he's pointing out here in the text as we see this. He is talking about the spiritually rotten fruit and how you can identify them. Once you you see in the very beginning here, Jesus is not sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Look at verse 2, what he says here. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. This is important to just recognize what Jesus is saying and not saying. Jesus is not saying, hey, listen, they have so abused this office, they have so wrongly represented it, no longer have anything to do with it. This idea of sitting on Moses' seat was kind of like a, a, a Jewish phrase, a way of saying, hey, they would explain and apply the writings of Moses and the rabbi Sensen He's like, that position, that practice is still good and necessary, and in so much as it teaches what Moses says, do that. So Jesus is differentiating here, the office, from the abuse of the office by particular individuals. I say this because I think we would do well to even have that type of nuanced, subtle distinction ourselves today. We can see people who abuse roles in society, offices that we've recognized, and therefore, because we're so disappointed in such a position, and such a person, we just dismiss the office altogether. I was at an event recently uh, and saw uh, a person take on a political stance about a particular individual and uh, really had some slanderous things to say about that political personality, and quite venomous in how they represented it. And I was concerned because, as I've seen regularly happen in our country, is that citizens don't seem like they have a very good ability to distinguish between a person to whom they disagree with their personality or even their policies— which, in the freedom you've been given the opportunity to do, you're welcome to do so, versus the position by which they occupy. In this specific case, a president. The office of a president, and the significance of that role in our society, both historically and presently, is significant and should be recognized as such, versus the person who might occupy that position. It's not unique to that office, though. We think about people like police officers, Sure, we lament when we have seen abusive men or women who have handled that position so corruptively, so horribly, but by no means now do we devalue the entire industry of law enforcement. We could say the same about pastors, grotesque examples of abusive positions of power and pastors. Do we just stop going to church? Stop listening to anybody teach us the Bible? Well, Jesus is saying here, he's taking issue with people's practice and how that should be recognized here. The distortion of godly leaders. And you can see that distortion. What, what is it he's taking issue with? He says in the very end of verse 3, they preach, but they do not practice. The, the sign of the spiritual rotten fruit is that they tell others what to do, but they do not do it themselves. And as if that's not bad enough in the sort of hypocrisy... Look at what it says there in verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. So these are individuals, man, they've got a strong word and not a strong life. They've got a strong name, and they do not want you to forget that. And Make sure you show them the respect that they deserve. Friends, this is not just a problem 2,000 years ago with the scribes and the Pharisees. This can be a problem even today in churches. Because this problem has not been rooted out from us. It's not a culturally bound problem. It's a problem found in the hearts of everyone in this room. It's this problem of pride. And the blindness to see the sin of others, but not be able to see it in ourselves. This distortion of godly leadership was so common. And you can kind of see the contrast of what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 6. About them, he says, they love the place of honor at feasts. And the best seats in the synagogues. So, just to give you kind of a context here, and Jesus spoke about this earlier in his ministry it's this idea that if you were a guest at someone's house, the closer you sat to the host, kind of the closer you were up in sort of the rankings of social status, of sort of what your place was in society. Similar in synagogues, the the closer you sat to the front, And, and we know this today, we see this, right? I mean, honestly, I was with a friend here tonight recently, and I mean, he's here tonight, but recently we were at a Miami Heat basketball game, and honestly, I was feeling pretty special because thanks to him, we sat very close. Now, we weren't on the floor close, but if I wanted to like talk loudly to the people on the floor, they could have heard me, but other friends were here tonight, they weren't so close. They were up where I'm used to sitting, way up high. Now, I confess, in the spirit of being a good brother, we met up at halftime, and I said to them when we were leaving, I said, hey, do you need some cotton? And they said, oh, I was like, for the nosebleed you're about to get going up that high. I mean, the closer you are to the center of the action, man, seemingly the better it is. But here's what's crazy. What's crazy, you can actually have that kind of way of thinking, even in like churches and synagogues and religious gatherings, people want to be known. They want VIP parking. They want special accolades. Friends, if we begin to think that way about ourselves, we've clearly forgotten who we are, a sinner saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. What's perverse and so corrupt is that you have religious leaders who are thinking that way, this sort of green room mentality. I remember one time speaking to a pastor who said that he really did make sure to want to prefer that he was referred to when he was addressed using the term pastor, or specifically the word reverend, which I thought, oh man, you really want to go with reverend? Like you want to be revered? I said, why do you feel that way? He says, I think it's just important for people to understand the distinction between them versus me. It just felt like nails on the spiritual chalkboard. Like, distinction in what way? Like, role? Like, as far as responsibility to preach God's word? I can understand that. But do you need a title to understand? I think by the time you get up there and speak, they're kind of like, yep, I'm glad it's him and not me. I think they kind of know the distinction then. But the reality is we're like we're all made in the image of God. So we all have dignity and respect and we're all tainted and fallen corrupted by sin. The problem here with these spiritual leaders though in the text that Jesus is addressing is they didn't understand that. Well Jesus wants to make it very clear to the disciples and the crowd because look at the contrast. Look at what he says in verse 11. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In God's assessment of greatness, leaders are servants. If you're uncomfortable serving people, you're unqualified to lead people. I just just want to say that again as a point of self-reflection on where you are and how you're doing How comfortable, not competent, I know you're competent, how comfortable are you at serving people? That answer, not entirely, but in part, helps connect how potentially qualified you are or are not to lead people, at least according to how God thinks of leadership. This takes us now to the practices. We've talked about the problem, the distortion of godly leadership. Now we come to the practices perversion of ungodly hypocrites. Matthew 23 is one of the most sobering passages in Scripture because of what is said and who says it. Jesus is basically taking this word here and now, this word he repeatedly uses, hypocrite, and he's making it a synonym for a group of religious people. I mean, I'm Like if you're a Pharisee, but you're like not a bad Pharisee. Because just to be clear, it wasn't as if a Pharisee in and of themselves was wrong. It's how they so corrupted so commonly the word of God. But they're so now interchangeable that seemingly to be a Pharisee was to be a hypocrite. To be a hypocrite was to be a Pharisee. And Jesus is addressing this problem and he calls them even, listen to this list of what he's about to describe them. He calls them sons of hell, blind guides. Fools, robbers, self-indulgent, whitewashed tombs, full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, serpents, vipers, persecutors, and murderers of God's people. How about that for your spiritual resume? Well, if we were to check in some of your references, what would they say about you? Well, it depends on who you ask. If you ask my friends, they might say one thing. You ask God, well, he's probably going to say something different. Jesus goes on now to give a series of seven woe statements. Now, this is not like some like surfer, first century, first, first century surfer woe. This term woe is often a term used of sorrow, of grief. Think, for example, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah has the vision of God and sees God in His holiness and the angels with two wings are flying, two wings are covering their face, and two wings are covering their feet for the holiness of God, and Isaiah has this vision and he says, woe is me. He's overwhelmed by the contrast of God's greatness and holiness and His sinfulness. But in the context here which Jesus is using this term repeatedly over and over and over again He's using it as a declaration, a divine pronouncement of judgment from God. If The Pharisees and the scribes do not repent and believe in Christ. They will be doomed to hell under God's righteous and just wrath. And so he starts detailing their hypocrisy. And to this, Jesus teaches us seven signs you're dealing with the hypocrite. Seven signs you're dealing with the hypocrite. Number one, their example discourages people from pursuing God. Their example discourages people from pursuing God. Look at verse 13 and 14. He now turns his attention to them and says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For neither enter yourselves, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would would enter to go in. He is just overwhelmingly coming to them now and saying, listen, your example discourages people. What's the context? The context is this. What Jesus is talking about here is Jesus has already clearly and thoroughly established undeniably by his words, by his actions, by his answers back to their questions, he is God. And what's happening with the Pharisees is not only do they not believe it and refuse to submit to it, they discourage anybody else from following him and believing in him. They are committed to discourage any people to take a step of faith towards Christ. They do not want God to be reigning in people's lives. They shut out the kingdom of God by their own example and by their teaching discouraging common people from recognizing who Jesus is. And this idea, this phrase he uses here, you know, shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You kind of see this, even this kind of analogy and word picture even today, you Think about someone slamming the door in your face. You they well, go, how rude would that be, right? Someone's got to be really angry. Someone's got to be really, you know, mad or really want privacy or very kind of done. He uses this kind of word picture here, it's kind of idea to say, not even accessible. All they care about is themselves. They will not turn. The second sign you're dealing with, the hypocrite, Jesus says, number two, they work hard to get people to follow them, not God. Look at verses 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Like, what are we talking about here? Jesus is, in one sense, commending, but then, in one of way, is confronting a problem. The problem is not zeal to make a convert to the extent that someone would go to. They would would travel the world to make a convert. But it's like all you're doing is making them a convert of hell. How are you doing this? Because Jesus is condemning the leaders for teaching their converts the same hypocrisy they practiced themselves. They led their converts into a religion of works, not into true righteousness. Friends, this is a temptation even today. This idea of influence, of followership, of friends, religious influencers who are more concerned about followers for themselves than they are followers of Christ. The zeal that the Pharisees went to was just to kind of build up their own self-image. And just to be very honest, speaking as a pastor, on behalf of pastors, this Temptation still sits at the feet of every pastor today. The temptation for pastors is to find their identity in their attendance as a statement of validation of the legitimacy of their ministry and therefore their identity. So the bigger the church, the more the services, the more the campuses, the more the personalities all under the name of outreach. See, friends, what you see here in verse 15 is what's called outreach. But it's to reach people for themselves, to build up their own insecure little cultic followings. It's not actually to connect people to the Savior. So many churches over the years have lost their way under the banner of outreach. And it should surely be something that every Christian recognizes and understands, even prays for their pastors. Pray for Ronald, pray for Chris, pray for myself, pray that we'd be a faithful church. That's sort of measuring how good we are, how good you are, how good all of us are based on how many people are sitting in this room or how many times over this room gets filled. Friends, that can be a deceiving way to measure any work of God. It's certainly how the Pharisees thought. The third sign you're dealing with the hypocrite. Number three, they change their interpretation of the Bible to match their decisions. They change their interpretation of the Bible to match their decisions. Look at verse 16 and the following. He says, "Woe to you, blind guides!" Now, notice here he's about to refer to how blind they are several times. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, "If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing; but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath." Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Now, right now, you might be like, I'm so confused. What are we talking about here? You see, what would be common for them at the time is they would have people approach them and say, hey, I made a promise to my coworker. I made a promise to my brother. I made a promise to my friend How obligated am I to keep that promise? And I said, well, tell me a little bit more about the promise. Well, I pledged, and I'm not making this up, I pledged by all the gold that I have, I would keep it. You just said the gold that you have, yes. You didn't say the gold that is made on the altar is made of the temple. Well, no, I would never do that. Yeah, you're fine. Thank you, that's so good to know. So I can break my word, you're fine. And on and on this type of little distinction would go, but the reason they would do this is because they were themselves wanting to validate their own decisions as to when they made their own promises and when they would not keep their promises. That a selective way of being able to be known as men of integrity When the decision, matched their desire. The same temptation can be troubling for us as well today. Keeping our word when our word benefits us. Otherwise, reinterpreting it to go, I didn't know that's what you meant. All the while trying to maintain honesty and integrity as if there's been no change in any way in your intention. What happens here is that we see that the hypocrite fancy themselves to be guides of the blind, but they themselves were blind and could not see anything around them, including their own problems. This is the, sort of the fallacy of the religious person who is always seemingly can see what everybody else should be doing but can't themselves figure out their own life, right? Always able to like speak to other people's lives and issues but that they, they make the worst decisions themselves. It's like, hey, have you ever just thought about like, applying your own lessons, listening to your own counsel? Like actually like applying what you're learning yourself or at least teaching everybody else that you're not even learning yourself. They change their interpretation of the Bible to match their decisions. The Pharisees claim to guide the people in the truth, but they're incapable of doing so because they did not know the truth themselves. The fourth sign you're dealing with the hypocrite is they prioritize smaller matters to neglect of other important matters. They prioritize smaller matters to neglect of other important matters. Look at verse 23. "Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites." For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. The idea here of what he's talking about is the significance of how they would think through what really mattered. So tithe, the word tithe, T-I-T-H-E, means tenth. And so it'd be a common practice for them to give 10% of everything God had given them as an act of worship and trust in the Lord. And they were fastidious. They were like down to the detail in this. Whatever, whatever they had, they would give. And so even down to like the herbs, you're like, dude, that's radical. I mean, I haven't thought about my plants in my backyard at all, giving those to the Lord. But they were like, they were just, anything that they came across, it's for the Lord. Now, we saw earlier in Matthew 6, they ought would give with a lot of fanciful, kind of fair. They would want people to make sure, hey, just make sure you see me over here. Anonymous giving would be like, why would you even give them? They want to be seen and heard and known by others. I'm out here. I'm about to make a big old drop of offering here in this box. Make sure you do not miss it. Tell your friends, I'll go slow if you want to capture it on your phone. Meanwhile, no time, as it describes here, for justice, for mercy, for faithfulness. You know why? Because justice, mercy, and faithfulness gets to the heart of why you do what you do. This is where we get a real honest look at what is really going on inside of us. If I just give you a list of things to do, what we sometimes call checklist Christianity, do this, do this, do this, do this, will you feel like, okay, I've done everything, and by the way, I'm kind of keeping track of everybody else for you, Eric, this is like a little free service. Um, They're not doing as well. That is gets to the action of what you're doing, not the attitude and the heart behind it. You get into categories like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. This gets into immeasurable realities of how you treat people when there's no actual ask or request to do so accordingly. Are you characterized like this? For the Pharisees, they were not. They wanted to do the smaller matters that they could find their confidence in, their assurance in, but they neglected the more important matters. Now, God is not saying here, Jesus is not saying, hey, don't tie." That's not what he's saying here in the text. He's not really dealing with that at all. He's commending that as a practice Earlier, like he's talking about the seed of Moses. He's getting what they're neglecting, what they're neglecting. Take minor things, leaving the major things undone. What he does here is he basically turns the hyperbole and Verse 24, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swung a camel. The idea here at that time is wine at festivals, at times of uh, weddings, at times even just of normal times in the house because of water not being clean, wine would be fermented and you have it in like these big jars, these big containers, and then you would pour it into a smaller container to be able to drink from it. You're like your house. You can imagine like a big five gallon container, you can pour it into like a little pitcher and you would strain the wine. We'd strain it to so keep any bugs that had gotten into the wine. Because there's nothing kind of more embarrassing. You'd be like, oh, sorry, fly. little gnat. Eh, you know, protein, you're okay. No one wants to do that and have you over at their house. And it's using hyperbole here like, hey, you will go to such a You will strain at gnat. You'll, you'll be concerned about the smallest detail, but you'll, you'll eat a whole camel. And it's this kind of hyperbole example about why is it you care about the small things, but you miss the big thing staring right in front of you. It takes us to number five, the fifth sign you're dealing with the hypocrite. They're more concerned about how they look, or others look, but neglect their own hearts. But neglect their own hearts. Look at verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Uh, As a resident member of the Bancroft Five household, Uh, I am a card-carrying certified dishwasher in our house. Now, you have to understand the significance of this. Not every member of the Bancroft household carries a certification. I have it, Isaac has it, David's in probation, Jeremiah's never been given a chance. Uh, The only uh, certified inspector that can grant you this is the one and only Queen Bancroft, my wife. My wife's idea of cleaning dishes, um, well, let's just say you would not be qualified. She wants to make sure, appreciatively, understandably, that if we're going to call it clean, it actually is clean. Here's the problem. The problem is not myself or my children. The problem is when my family shows up. My family, my extended family, whom I love dearly, um, they have a different sort of measuring of clean. So clean is relative to them. Clean is like, well, it's not dipped in kerosene. Clean is like, well, I didn't pick it up out of the trash. Clean is like, well, there is some peanut butter, but you're welcome. That's for the next thing which you're about to make a couple days from now on the plate. It's a bit relative. So it's kind of been an exercise over the years that my family has kind of learned when you're done, it's better just leave it in the sink. Leave it in the sink. Bless your heart for trying to clean it. It's not going to come out well. Because in our home, usually the dishwasher, dishwasher which you think that oh, no, we're supposed to clean everything with, in our home usually the dishwasher is the drying rack. We hand clean because you know sometimes dishwasher leaves like water stains, and who wants water stains, right? Like that's 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 disappointing. Now I'm getting into all my business here. Welcome to the Bancroft family. How crazy would it be to wash a dish all clean on the outside? But the very inside of the bowl that that chili was in, that that oatmeal was sitting in from the morning, you just put back in the cabinet. Like I cleaned it. You're like, no, you did not. You maybe make it attempt at it, but you didn't really get that thing clean. That'd be ridiculous. Jesus is saying the Pharisees are equally as ridiculous with their lives. You're so worried about what you wear. You're so worried about what you do. You're so worried about what people think of you yet you've neglected your inner person. Your heart is far from the Lord. He likened them to being dishes that were carefully clean on the outside and yet left dirty on the inside. Their hearts were full of greed and self-indulgence. They were concerned about external purity while they were unclean on the inside. Friends, to be very clear, this isn't just a problem for Religious leaders from 2,000 years ago, this can be a problem for Christians today, who can sit so judgmentally upon other people because how other people look on the outside, and more concerned about how people look than how people actually are on the inside. And believing if we can just get a certain person to look a certain way, they'll be OK. That's not true at all. That presents a false gospel. That God is more concerned about what you look like on the outside than He is on the inside. But this is a temptation for us as Christians. This is a temptation for us to want to have people identify with our decisions that would make us feel more comfortable. What you wear, where you go, what you do, and have little to no concern about your heart and what you love, what you desire, what you fear what you're identified as. Because in this case, the hypocrites are more concerned about how they look or how others look, but neglect their own hearts. The sixth sign you're dealing with, the hypocrite, verse 27, 28, they impress others with their morality, but they're rotten on the inside. They impress others with their morality, but they're rotten on the inside. Look at verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. A Jewish person could not be by a dead body or they would be unclean and have to go through a ritual of being made clean for a certain amount of days, a certain amount of procedure before they could return to the temple. And so one of the practices that they would do at this time is that they would paint tombs, kind of these areas, with like in a headstones kind of idea, they'd paint them white so you could not miss them and you would not make the mistake of mistakenly coming close to them. Painting of these tombs to identify them so people would not be there who otherwise would want to stay away from there. He's basically saying, listen, Your life is simply being painted with this outside morality, trying to impress other people with it. But you're rotten on the inside, appearing to be morally upright before men even though you are full of lawlessness. Seventh and final, son, you're dealing with the hypocrite. They boast in the past while failing to live according to the example of faith from the past. They boast in the past while failing to live according to the example of faith from the past. Look at verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets." Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your own synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. The blood of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And now he moves from the immediate audience to the larger national reality that we'll see in the coming weeks, which is the judgment of God upon those people at that time. People that claimed that they had a religious background. He says, the only background in which you can claim is the background of that sin produced in your own life. Friends, if there's anybody here who believes that they're a Christian because you're from a Christian family, that's not an accurate description of yourself. The only thing that would be more accurate to actually say, or the thing that would be actually more accurate to say, is to say, I'm a sinner because I come from a sinful family. And it started in Adam, and it's been descended all the way down to me. And I have no hope in my family tree and in me to be forgiven of my sin, except to turn to the only one that God has given to be forgiven, which is His Son, Jesus Christ. And by recognizing that I need forgiveness... I need to now turn and surrender my life to Him. And unlike the Pharisees who would not surrender, who would not submit, I do not want to be a brood of vipers. I do not want to be a child of hell. I do not want to fall under God's righteous judgment. I instead want to turn and submit myself to the mercies of God found in Jesus Christ. That only in Him could I be forgiven. The past can condemn you as much as it can confirm you. Condemn you because of what has been taught to you before, what's been shown to you before, and what we maybe are still doing today. Or it can confirm to you that by contrast, you are living a different life than you used to live because you have put your faith in Christ. The question for all of us is, where is hypocrisy tempting us? Where is it tempting you? Where do you talk a better game than you practice? Because here's what hypocrites lack, to summarize it. They lack humility, and they lack sympathy. Hypocrites lack humility, and they lack sympathy. They do not see themselves accurately, and therefore they do not see themselves with others with solidarity. Sinners needing a Savior who have found one in Christ. For us as a church, I pray that we'd be a humble church, not believing that we're better than others, but praying for the churches, desiring to see God bless that work, being faithful to the gospel, planting more churches as an extension expression of the power of the gospel, not the power of this little church here. We're just one of many faithful churches over the years, and the time will come if the Lord does not return before then that we will come to an end. But God's work will not. And we want to be faithful about that work. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to him through his word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.